thank you again, Matt and team, for leading us. It's wonderful to have a strong block of worship as part of our gathering. Well, everything we do together is worship, uh, but worship through song is particularly significant. I was thinking back a little bit this week to uh, the days when I was teaching in primary school, which is a while back now, and to one of my... Well, I guess it was one of my favourite kind of activities, a love-hate kind of relationship with yard duty. <laughs> yeah, yard duty, you know, you're rostered on a couple of times a week and you had to go out, uh, rain, hail or shine, or depending on the school, of course, because nowadays we don't want children to get wet so they don't go out in the wet, but um, in those days we didn't worry quite so much. And, uh, and you prowled around the playground. I generally stayed fairly mobile in that space because you just never knew where there was going to be some kind of issue erupt and when it did, chances are you weren't there anyway but, and no one knew where you were because you were prowling around. But the usual kind of things that you would, you would get would be something like this. Someone would come up and say, Mr H, Mr H. I always made, as a terrible error allowing the children to shorten your name. Um, I should have chosen a really long name because Mr H is too easy for them. Mr H, my ball's gone on the roof. So we'd go and retrieve the ball or... Mr H, I've fallen over and, there's, and I've really hurt my knee. There's a tiny, tiny little cut that you'd need a microscope to be able to see. Or, Mr H, he keeps looking at me. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, there were occasions where you had to console people who... who, who <laughs> so this will date some of us. Whose elastics had broken. <laughs> That's a playground disaster. And there was another occasion, I was just thinking about this a moment ago. I hadn't planned to say this, so this could go anywhere. Um, there was a young fellow we'd had quite a challenge with in our school and I did my very best to protect him, to keep him out of trouble. He was one of my kids in the grade six. And one afternoon I, I got a report to say, this guy, I won't use his name, has just thrown a rock through one of the teacher's car windows. All of the work I'm trying to do to keep him out of strife. And he's thrown a rock through the car window of one of the young lady teachers who clearly, she was quite upset. And I went and I grabbed this guy. I said, what were you thinking? He said, I didn't mean it. I said, how did it happen? He said, I was aiming at that light up there on the corner. <laughs> and then every now and again, you would, um, you'd be accosted by a breathless, a, a breathless child, a boy or a girl. It didn't matter. You're straight. Mr H, there's a fight behind the shelter shed. Ah, now that's a bit of excitement. <laughs> Depending on who it was, determine how fast I went. <laughs> and there was one or two occasions where I thought, oh, this could be interesting. I'll just take my time. Um, and then when you got there, those of you who are kind of thinking back to your days, you might remember, uh, normally what would happen, there would be a ring of non-combatants, spectators, and somewhere in the middle, normally in a clinch, you know, grabbing each other by the shirt, uh, would be a couple of children, normally boys, not always, but normally boys, uh, locked together, not too much damage being done, a few buttons pulled off, you know, fat lip, maybe a blood nose, that sort of stuff. Nothing too serious. And <laughs> as I was thinking about that, in my life, that's probably about as close as I've ever been to a fight. There were a few close calls uh, while we were serving overseas, you know, driving into situations, but um, that's about as close as I've been. Because I'm tall and a bit um, 
intimidating for some people. Diana says that eyebrows do it. Um, <laughs> never kind of had too many people pick on me in that space. But as I read through Acts chapter 24, I thought, man, the Apostle Paul, he is well acquainted with what we might call fracas, fights, um, disagreements, if you like. Acts chapter 24 is an interesting chapter. We really need a little bit of context from Acts chapter 21 to 23 to set the scene for chapter 24 before we come to it. And so let me just quickly back up and give you a little bit of uh, a framework to work with. Because back in Acts chapter 21, uh, Paul, who had been ministering uh, through Asia Minor, had determined to go back to Jerusalem and so set, uh, set off in that direction. Uh, when he arrived in Jerusalem, it was less than a week after he had been in Jerusalem. Uh, he was warmly received in Jerusalem. He went up into the temple precincts. But some of the Jews from Asia who had had an issue with him back in that space saw him there, stirred up an enormous amount of trouble and there was a riot that ensued. And if you have a look at chapter 21, verse 31, you'll see here the reports that uh, Paul was actually in danger of losing his life. Such was the ferocity of the anger that was generated in this space. And as this was happening, news reached the commander of the Roman troops. Romans were always very toey in Jerusalem in these days. They were always concerned about something getting out of control. And so the Romans would respond quite quickly. The Roman troops intervened and arrested Paul. And even while he was under arrest, he actually said to the Romans, do you mind if I just say something to the crowd? Which he did, and, uh, and it inflamed them again. Uh, the, the commander took Paul back to the barracks, again for his own safety, but in the whole process and, and the summary nature of Roman law, uh, determined to flog Paul. And you might remember from reading through these passages in the past that Paul said, hang on a second, I'm a Roman citizen, it's illegal for you to do that. And so he avoided that punishment. The next day, the commander determined to find out what Paul was being accused of and so he called the Sanhedrin together. We're in chapter 22, around verse 30. And Paul uh, spoke to the Sanhedrin once again. And Paul, I don't know whether there's an element of Paul that he just kind of liked to stir up trouble, but he knew that in the context of the Sanhedrin there were people over here, the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection and there were the Pharisees who did believe in the resurrection and there was a sharp dispute that normally kind of bubbled under the surface between these two groups. And Paul, being Paul, just kind of poured a bit of jet fuel onto this fire and suddenly there was another great riot that ensued within the Sanhedrin. Such was the ferocity of this one that, uh, that the, the Romans were concerned that Paul might even be torn apart. So you can understand uh, Paul, you know, he's up close and very proximate with some significant... Uh, some significant fights going on here. And then the Romans decide, well, let's get Paul out of here. Uh, there was a plot that had been uncovered, if you read there at the end of chapter 23, to kill Paul. The Romans said, well, it's really not safe to have him here. Let's take him to the coast, uh, which would be west from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And uh, there he was guarded and put on trial before Governor Felix. Chapter 24 a chapter that is disturbingly resonant with our own times in which 
uh, in which we see those who have vested interests or power or authority like Felix achieve outcomes through the process of law which are not necessarily vaguely related to the truth. What we see flowing through this chapter is a Sanhedrin who tries to get an outcome without reference to truth or even good evidence. In chapter 24, verse 1, we're told that five days after Paul had been taken to Caesarea, Ananias, the high priest, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders along with a lawyer named Tertullus. This is how serious the Sanhedrin was. They engaged a professional in this space to prosecute their case. And the fact that they had gone to the trouble of engaging Tertullus would suggest just how serious they were at seeing Paul's demise. And as they brought charges, which I'll talk about in just a moment, Tertullus actually used what is in Roman times a very typical approach to the judge. And as I was reading it, you might have picked it up there from verse 2 where he says to Felix, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you and your foresight has brought about the reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude, but in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. He's kind of smearing it on there, isn't he? Painting it on there. Anyone else in the room who was listening to this, the Jews in particular, would have gagged as they heard this because there's something you need to know about Governor Felix. You see, this fellow was anything but a nice fellow. Felix was actually born as a slave and through uh, the influence that he had uh, with his brother uh, who was connected to Claudius, uh, sorry, his brother Claudius who was connected to the Romans, uh, Felix was the first, in history, the first slave to actually become a governor. And so he had risen up through the ranks. Felix was a good politician. Felix kind of knew how things worked. He knew how to use influence. His wife, who we meet later in the chapter, Drusilla, was actually the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa. So there's a connection. And uh, history tells us, historians tell us that uh, Drusilla was a beautiful woman, a, a most attractive young lady of about 20 years old, when Felix, who was very used to getting his own way, seduced Drusilla and she left her husband. She was married. But Felix seduced her away from her husband and married her, making her his third wife. His rule in Judea was actually anything but peaceful. He was actually known as a tyrant. He, uh, he was the one who oversaw the crucifixion of thousands of Jews. And at the same time, he was quietly engaging some of the more radical elements of, of the Jews, the, the likes of um, the, what they call the Sakari, the knife men, uh, possibly the likes of Judas Iscariot, those who were kind of a little bit given to violence, he engaged them for his own purposes. He would use them to achieve uh, political outcomes, basically to knife some of his enemies. The historian Tacitus says this of Felix, he indulged in every licence and excess, thinking that he could do evil with impunity. Have you ever given any thought to what you'd like on your headstone? You probably don't want... Tim indulged in every licence and excess thinking that he could do evil with impunity. That's not a great way to be remembered, is it? And yet that's how the Jews remembered Felix. And so those who were in the court when Tertullus laid out this, what's a good word for this? 
smarmy, uh, breezy kind of uh, flattering introduction would have almost been choking on their baklava. <laughs> what, what's actually going on in this place? Well, the answer actually is, uh, and I've used the word, it is flattery. And we could skip over that and say, well, you know, that's just a Tullus doing uh, what he does, and that was typical of his time, and that is true. Uh, but the Bible actually talks about flattery as being sin. And in all my years, as I've thought about this, I don't actually remember ever hearing a preacher preach about flattery as sin. You might want to correct me in that space. But if you go and dig through the scriptures, you'll actually discover the Bible talks on a number of occasions, I'll give you a couple of examples in a moment, where flattery is identified as something quite ungodly because what Tertullus was trying to do was to manipulate Felix to get an outcome and what flattery does is try to manipulate a person to get an outcome. Quite a few years ago, uh, after one of our evening services, a lady who'd come back into the city that we were ministering in who wanted to kind of do some ministry herself came to church and she came to me after the service. And I'll never forget it because uh, it, was, it was really weird. I, I'm thankful that God has blessed me with a degree of discernment because this person came and she said, Oh, David, your church is the best church in this whole city. I've been around them. This is the one that's really on fire. This is where the Spirit's working. And you're kind of like the, the only preacher in this town that gets what God wants to do in this place. And I'm thinking, yeah, right, you know, what's going on here? So you have experience where yellow lights are kind of flashing, warning, 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 that's what was happening. She was using flattery to try and achieve an outcome. Paul says to the Roman church in chapter 16, verse 18, just by way of example, to keep away from those who cause divisions and obstacles uh, in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have received. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of people. In other words, people who want to come in and manipulate, they want to get people away, and a little group around them, a little posse of people who are on their side, they'll flatter people. They will flatter people, make them feel good, manipulate them to get an outcome. We could jump to Jude. Uh, I think it's around chapter 1, verse 26, Jude criticises the godless men who had come into the church and were teaching that grace was a licence for immorality and they also denied Jesus Christ as Lord. Jude said these words, these men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. And so consistently throughout the scripture, flattery is considered to be sinful. It's something that people use to gain advantage for themselves. Not to be confused with encouragement, not for a moment. Because we all need encouragement, don't we? We all need the energy, the fuel that encouragement provides, the building up, the edifying that encouragement gives. But none of us need to be flattered. It's ungodly. And we can't help, I can't help but wonder whether Felix would have just been sitting back. I have an image in my head of Felix sort of sitting in one of those sort of throne-like chairs, sitting back there going, yeah, keep on going. Lay it on. It's not going to do you any good, but no, you've got to do it kind of stuff. And then if we continue in this passage, the Jews, uh, uh, to tell us the lawyer uh, representing the Jews, verse 5, 
outlines the accusations that there are against Paul. He was accused of being a troublemaker, starting riots amongst the Jews all over the world. Wow, I didn't know Paul had been all over the world. Paul would have been sitting there going, I haven't been all over the world. How could I have done that? And yet, that's what he was accused of. He was accused of being a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Now, there's a little barb in that accusation. Remember, uh, Nazareth, a place of no consequence, really. The sect of the Nazarenes. Well, they're nothing, really. He's a ringleader of this nothing sect. And he was accused, in verse 6, of desecrating the temple. An accusation that is also completely without foundation or evidence. And then if you come to verse 8, Tertullus says, By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. In other words, read between the lines here, I haven't got anything else to say if you find something good. You know, by checking him out yourself, seriously, Tertullus was hoping that Paul would incriminate himself. Because he hasn't got anything else, he's got nothing else to work with. And it's very interesting to see how Paul response in this space because his defence is irrational not irrational, a rational I better qualify that his defence is very rational it is gracious it is carefully constructed it artic articulates the truth in the face of these spurious accusations and Paul actually correctly argued that under Roman law those who had accused him i.e. the Jews from Asia, should have been the ones bringing the accusations. That's what Roman law required. They were not present. Technically, there shouldn't have even been a, a hearing because the accusers were not there to make accusation. And he consistently called the court back to the evidence in his defence. This is what happened. Here is the evidence. Here is the evidence. Here is the evidence. As I was thinking about this, through the week I was reminded of a conversation that I had uh, quite a few years ago. It was around the time when the Victorian government was framing up the assisted dying legislation. Do you remember that season? It's a few years ago now. And at the time I had a friend who was a palliative care doctor and uh, he didn't have any moral or ethical objections. He was not a Christian. He was he had no particular moral or ethical objections to assisted dying himself. But he did say to me, you know, David, one of the problems with the debate is that they're ignoring the evidence. At the time, there were some prominent public figures, most notably some media figures, telling stories of their own experience with loved ones who had passed away in unpleasant circumstances. And no one can deny uh, the grief in that space or how unpleasant that would have been. But my palliative care doctor friend said to me that those cases are so rare and largely unnecessary because we have treatment that is able to work well in that space. What we need is not actually assisted dying legislation. What we need is better training around palliative care. We need more resources in that space. And I tell you that story not to polarise you depending where you might sit on a question like that but to make the point that what's happening and is increasingly happening in the public sphere today is that our government is introducing uh, social change not based on evidence, not based on truth, but on ideology. And that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. 
And I put it to you that many of the social issues that we're engaging with in our day, the ones that we bump up against too as followers of Jesus are not changes that are being sought because there's necessarily a, a body of well-researched evidence that suggests they're helpful or beneficial or anything other than the fact that there's a strong ideology pushing behind them. And we're seeing, I think, more and more ideology that's clashing with biblical values. And we need to figure out how we're going to respond in that space. What is the truth of God's word on these issues? How do we articulate that in a world that doesn't want to hear truth, doesn't want to hear evidence? I just want to talk about my experience. And it was ideology that was driving the Sanhedrin here to press charges against Paul. They didn't care a jot about the evidence. The evidence was actually kind of inconvenient for them. They had an agenda that they wanted to press. They wanted to get rid of this guy, get him out of the way. He was a nuisance to them. And they were prepared to go to great lengths to do that, to use flattery, to lie, to manipulate, whatever. And in this space, Paul had nothing to fear from the truth. But Paul also understood something that I think we need to understand too. And that is that truth doesn't always win out in a court of law. Neither does truth always win out in a changing context like ours, a world that has redefined what truth is. Because truth is now what I want it to be. And just as a heads up, I think these are some of the spaces that we're going to have to do some hard work as God's people to articulate what the scripture actually says and to do so with love and grace and wisdom and discernment in this space. I suspect that actually there was a very, very good chance that Felix knew that Paul was actually innocent. In fact, I think it's a no-brainer to say that, Paul, uh, that Felix knew that Paul was innocent, and yet perhaps to curry favour with the Jews, and as Luke tells us here, perhaps because he was hoping for a bribe, uh, Felix kept Paul in remand, as it were. And then as we come down to verse 24, several days later, we see Felix, this time in the company of Drusilla, his Jewish wife, called for Paul and Paul spoke to them about faith in Christ. Luke actually tells us that Felix had some understanding of the way, as in Christianity. Perhaps he'd learnt that through Drusilla. Uh, we're not sure. But it's rather interesting when you have a look at what Paul spoke to them about. Remember that Felix had married three times, had seduced Drusilla away from her husband. She had uh, left him and married Felix. He's living in this really grey, moral kind of soup, if you like. So what does Paul talk to them about? Uh, faith in Christ Jesus, righteousness, self-control and the judgement to come. That's pretty gutsy, isn't it? Starting with faith in Christ Jesus, the foundation, but perhaps directly to their situation. Righteousness, self-control and the judgement to come. No wonder we see there in verse 25 that we're told Felix was afraid, as well he might have been. The text seems to suggest that Felix understood the message but chose to ignore it, so well might he have been afraid. If you jump to a passage like Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 26, it says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. In other words, if you hear about salvation through Jesus Christ but reject it, there's nowhere else to go. 
That's it. Nowhere else to go. And Felix, he'd heard these things, deeply challenged by them, was afraid and said, oh, no, 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 I'm not going. No, please, uh, no more. And Felix thinks he's buying himself some time by saying to Paul, you can leave now when I find it convenient, I will send for you. But in actual fact, this it's the same as a rejection really, isn't it? I'll send for you when I'm ready. I'll do it when it's convenient. When's a good time to respond? Some of you uh, will have had similar experience to I as growing up. You remember on occasions you might have asked your parents for something? Could I please have a biscuit? What's the worst answer you can get in that case? Could I go to a friend's house? Could I have a puppy for my next birthday? What's the worst answer? What is that worst answer you can get in a context like that? Let me think about it. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe. It's better if it's just a no, isn't it? You know where you stand. Because if it's a no, uh, you can move on. Can I have a puppy? No. Can I have a kitten? No. How about a hamster? No. What about a goldfish? No. Pet rock? I'll think about it. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually foolish on the part of Felix to think that there will be a better time, that there will be a more convenient time. I'll call you, Paul, when it's more convenient. When is it going to be more convenient to confront the claims that Jesus Christ makes on us? It's foolish for us to think that there might be a more convenient time to respond to the appeal that Jesus makes to be our Lord and Saviour. I'll think about it tomorrow. I'll think about it when my children are grown up. I'll think about it when I'm financially secure. I'll think about it after this event in my life, when I get to my 50th birthday or uh, when I'm retired or whatever. The claims of Jesus are never convenient for us. There's uh, something that's not good news. The claims Jesus makes are never convenient for us. His call to us is never convenient. There will always be reasons why it's inconvenient. There will always be reasons why it's not a good time for us to surrender to Christ. A few weeks ago, uh, and I was watching this online because I wasn't here, Roderick spoke, and uh, I can't remember the exact context now of what he was saying, but there was something that jumped out and grabbed me. I think it was in terms of how you know we often pray Roderick, you can correct me later if you like. You know, hope that tomorrow will be better. You know, if only this changes, then today is the day the Lord has made. Today's the day God's given to us to live in. Today's the day of salvation. There's not going to be a better day. Today's the day that Jesus says, make a decision, act in obedience, do something in response of me, step out and serve. Grow into something I've been challenging you with. Today is the day that the Lord has made. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, one of my favourite verses. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Today is the day that Jesus stands there and calls us to respond. Today is the day that he invites us to a deeper walk with him. Today is the day to take that step in that direction. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2, Paul says, Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the time of salvation. Paul stayed in prison there, well, in house, under house arrest effectively for two years. Felix, as far as we know, never came back. Never had 
a meaningful conversation with Paul. He may have had some interaction with him. But because we see here in verse 27, because he wanted uh, to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. He didn't make a decision. And as I've said to some friends of mine on occasions, indecision is the worst decision. No decision is a bad decision. And that's the last we really hear of Felix. An opportunity, perhaps, to change his ways, to follow in the ways of the Lord, engage with one of the greatest missionaries that there ever lived, and yet he moved on. And there's the invitation, I guess, for us in that space too, isn't it? What do we say? What is God appealing to us to do today? It's never convenient to respond to the claims of God. It's never convenient to step out in faith. It's never convenient to do something that's going to stretch us or challenge us or grow us or mature us. I often think about the times when I'm uh, getting up early in the morning about to go for a bike ride and I look out the window and I'm looking for excuses. Is it raining? Oh, good, it's raining. I won't ride today. Is it windy? Oh, good, it's windy. That's not, that's not a good thing. Uh, are the leaves falling off the tree? Yeah, we don't want to have an accident run into a leaf. Very dangerous. Um, there's all sorts of reasons not to do it. But I know that if you push through those and actually get out there, it actually is good for you. And there, my friends, is the invitation that Jesus makes in that space too. An invitation that Felix had, an invitation that we had, an invitation that may not be convenient, but an invitation that will grow us and make us more Christ-like. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks again for your word. We're just so, uh, so grateful that these stories that we read, these events that took place have been recorded for us, that we might learn from them, that we might be challenged from them. And we invite your spirit to take these words today. We've just skimmed through them, we've read them, we've talked a little bit about them, and drive them deep into our hearts, the challenge of of being done with flattery, for example, the challenge of engaging with truth in a world that's given up on truth, the challenge of walking obediently with Jesus today, not leaving it till tomorrow or next week when it's more convenient, but just responding now. Lord, we invite you to speak to us as we continue to worship. If there's something that you want to say, your spirit is here amongst us. Just touch our hearts, speak to our spirits. Let us respond. Let us be courageous in responding. Whether it's responding by accepting Jesus as Lord for the first time, let us do that if it's to receive prayer here with our friends at the front who will pray for us. We uh, just pray that you will give us the courage to do that. Whether it's something else that we need to do to respond to your love, whether it's just to walk with you in a fresh way, today is the day. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity again to be together, to worship as your body, to be the church and to be witnesses here in our community. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.